Let me read with you uh, from James chapter 3. We'll get straight into the text uh, this evening. This is James 3, the verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who's never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they're so large and driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body. It sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by humankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Those are James' fighting words for today as we reach chapter 3 in the book of James. Did you notice verse 9 a moment ago? It's the one that jumped out out at me as I read through this text. It says, verse 9, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. I mean, we've just taken time just now to praise our Lord and Father, our God in heaven, the Creator, the Redeemer, Judge, our sustainer, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet, for how many of us have our words and the thoughts behind our words been unclean or impure today, perhaps before this worship service? For how many of us today have our words and thoughts been directed against others, others here in the community at Calvary or at Church at Five, in terms of gossip? In terms of envy, jealousy, complaining, grumbling, backbiting, or harshness. And I certainly know um, that this text affects me, even this morning. It comes to mind right now, this text is so challenging. I was short, that means I spoke harshly, with my sons, William and Lewis, for the record. There have been times, I don't know if you looked around while we were worshipping together, there's a so-called worship stance. I didn't grow up with it. As I say, last time I came from like a tea and biscuits with the vicar kind of church, but there's that kind of worship stance where people are like this. They look like they're in ecstasy. Oops. They look like they're completely in the moment of worship. And I'm not criticizing that stance, but there's been times in the, in, the, in the past where it seemed to me contrived because I would see people in the worship service praising God like this one moment. And then the moment the service was over and people started speaking in the groups and, and, and listening to what people spoke about and how they spoke, I was like, there's just a disconnect here. I'm not sure if that's ever occurred to you. It's something that's occurred to me uh, at different times um, 
over my, over my life in certain and different churches. But God, James is saying here, God is the object of our worship and praise with our mouths. And therefore, how can it be, if we're praising God with this mouth, with this tongue, that with these same mouths with which we praise God, we're now speaking against, or as he uses that strong language, cursing people who have been made in his image. And he says, this should not be. So these are important words for us here at Calvary, at Freiburg, at Church at Five. And let me say that again, these are important words for us to hear uh, as a community. It's, that's the context for James' letter, of course. It's the churches that he's writing to, the community of faith. And in a large measure, much of what James writes in this letter concerns the way in which people within the church relate to each other. That is to say, he doesn't uh, neglect that there is a world outside, but much of what James says is related to how we speak to each other, how we relate to each other, how we treat each other. And therefore, these are important Words. And our goal today is to humbly hear what James would say on this matter, to see its significance for us. And it is significant. James is he's almost a prophetic voice in this text. He's warning us here. He's calling out to us down through the centuries saying, watch out, be careful, be aware of the destructive power that human speech can have. And so as we looked last week at faith without works being dead faith, Let's continue in our series, James, uh, Living Faith, today. By understanding that living faith, we're looking at another mark or a, a further mark of living faith. And that is to say that living faith means taming the tongue. That's the um, heading given in the NIV. Living faith means taming the tongue. In other words, just to recap what we've seen so far, living faith, which is what we're talking about here in this book of James, is the kind of faith that leads us to having real joy, not fake joy, whenever we face trials of many kinds. It's the kind of faith that asks confidently from God for wisdom or any other spiritual blessing that may be lacking, believing that God is generous and gives gladly and freely to all who ask. It's the kind of faith that can see the reality of our position as human beings before Almighty God and, then, and thus can take pride in God even in humble and lowly circumstances here in this life on earth. Living faith is the kind of faith that perseveres under trial to attain the crown of life having stood the test. It's the kind of faith that understands the reality of sin and when tempted would therefore never say God is tempting me but rather it's the kind of faith that knows much more that God is the giver of all good gifts. Living faith is the kind of faith that doesn't merely listen to the word of God, but actually does what it says. It's the kind of faith to lead, that leads to what James calls true religion. That is to look after the needy and keep ourselves from the pollution of the world. It's the kind of faith that doesn't show partiality, or favoritism, but shows equal concern and love for all members of the church, the body of Christ. And it's the kind of faith, as we saw last week, that shows itself by our deeds, by what we do, grounded in, as a result of standing on the foundation of our faith. And it's the kind of faith we'll see today that heeds James' warning about the destructive power of, that speech can have, and therefore, by God's grace, seeks to tame the tongue. 
So, with that short uh, recap, let's dive into our text for this evening. Uh, I don't know if you know, but often we talk about diving into texts here at Church of Five. That's what I'm going to call a, um, in my notes here it says, Brandonism. I just, I, as, as, I'm just illustrating the power of speech to shape us. I'm now diving into a whole range of things in my life that I never thought I could. I'd only dived into water up until last year. So speech shapes us. I hope you can all see that. So you'll notice that James has already made mention of this issue of speech as one that he has something to say about. If you look back in the letter in chapter 1, we saw that. He said everyone should be slow to speak. James talks about this issue. He's got something to say about it. So having dealt with, as we saw last week, the relationship between faith and works, James now turns to this issue of speech and the tongue in some detail. And he begins, he says here in verse 1 and 2, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. That's a hypothetical. There is no one who meets that standard. So James begins here by directing a word of warning and pause to the teachers or elders of the churches that he's writing to. In fact, um, because these two verses are clearly directed to the teachers of the church, and verses 13 through 17, if you look down through your Bible, we'll get to those next week, so we won't cover them now, are also primarily directed to the leaders of the congregation. Lots of people have thought this whole section is more or less just directed to the teachers and the pastors at a church. And that would kind of be an easy way for us to get out of that and be like, oh, it's only for the teachers. We can ignore that and move on. But it seems to me to go against the, the spirit of the letter to suggest that there's this whole section in there that's only for one class of people in the church. Even if there's an emphasis here for the teachers, um, by extension, just as we looked at, just as when we read the Gospels, Jesus speaks many things to his disciples. And initially they were valid for the disciples, but by extension we apply them to our own lives. So that even if James is emphasizing something for the teachers here, we want to apply it to our lives as Christians too. And after all, James begins here by talking to those who are not yet teachers, but might be thinking about becoming so. So this is James' jumping off point for talking about how living faith relates to our speech. And he begins, as I say, by addressing the teachers. Now, if you look here at his argument, he says, not many teachers, I'm sorry, not many people, or not many of you in the community should become teachers, my brothers, because we who teach will be judged more strictly. So what's he talking about here? He's saying that because teaching, which is what's happening right now, kind of, in a way, involves speaking, involves speech, uh, which, as is clear from what we've heard in the, in the rest of the passage that he goes on to unfold, to speak, you need to use the tongue, which is, according to James, the hardest part of the body to control, the easiest with which to fall into sin by how we speak. It's because of this that teachers need to be especially careful in their teaching. And, and James says, indeed, because of this, teachers will be subjected to a more strict judgment, a higher standard. And therefore, because of that, that reality of being judged by God, not many of you should take that burden upon yourselves. He's not saying you shouldn't become teachers if you, if you feel that God's calling you to that. that well, that's a different issue. We'd have to talk about calling 
another time. But he's saying you should be aware of this higher standard that you will be held to. The constant use of speech by teachers means they can sin very easily and therefore lead others astray. And so if you... Sorry, just get out my Bible. If you um, move down to chapter 3 and verse 13 and 14, we can see that this was probably a problem in some of the churches to which James writes because these are, again, the teachers that he's writing to. There it says... In verse 13 of chapter 3, Who is wise and understanding among you, implied teachers of the church, let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. So it seems there was a problem with teachers abusing their power and not exercising heavenly wisdom. And so there are three ways in which teachers in the New Testament, so in the church of Jesus Christ, three ways the New Testament shows us that teachers will be judged more strictly. And I want to take a couple of minutes to briefly go through them with you. The three ways are this. Teachers will be judged more strictly in the church for what they say, that is the content of what they say, for how they say it, the manner in which they communicate that, and what they do or how they live. So they'll be judged more strictly for what they say, the content, how they say it, the manner, and what they do or how they live. And it seems that James here is mostly concerned with the second and third ways, the manner in which the teachers are speaking. They're speaking without wisdom and they're involved in envy and strife and also with how they live. He says they're not showing from their lives that they've understood the truth that they claim to know. Again, we saw that in 13 and 14, and we'll look at those verses next week. So again, teachers, because they bear so much responsibility for the spiritual welfare of those to whom they minister, will be scrutinized by the Lord Jesus more carefully than others. Let me just quote uh, Luke's gospel here. When Jesus is talking to his disciples and apostles about leadership, about teaching in his church, He says this, Luke 12 and verse 48, From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. This is the same principle that James is talking about. Much will be asked of you if you are a teacher in Jesus' church. And incidentally, both of these verses, so the verse in James and the verse in Luke, both weighed on me very heavily when I was considering the call to teaching here in the church, which I took a long time to consider, and I said no many times, because I was, I think I would like to say that I had a healthy fear of this reality. There is a stricter judgment that awaits. And so, just to go through it with you, the New Testament says that teachers must watch what they say, that is, they must stay faithful to the gospel of Christ and to the teaching of the apostles. And again, this is a subject for itself, but I just want to briefly mention one verse for each of these points just to see to help you see that that's in the New Testament. Paul writes to uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy 2:15 and he says, "Do your best, Timothy being a minister at this time, 
in the church. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. So Paul is saying there, you need to present yourself as a workman, as a teacher, approved by God. You don't need to be ashamed because you correctly handle the word of truth, implying that it is shameful if a teacher incorrectly handles the word of truth, wrongly teaches, teaches wrong content, or, taking it a step further, teaches false doctrine, teaching that is wrong. So that's the content. They have to be aware about what they say. And secondly, as James says here, they need to watch how they speak. They need to speak with wisdom, not with envy, not with selfish ambition, not with carelessness. James is not so much concerned, when I say how they speak, James is not so much concerned with rhetorical brilliance, that they're a wonderful speaker, that they've got everyone kind of on their, at their fingertips. We remember that Paul himself, one of the greatest preachers of the gospel, Paul said himself that he wasn't a great public speaker, he wasn't a brilliant preacher. But he spoke with a manner of speech that commended itself to people, he spoke with godly wisdom. And thirdly, Teachers need to watch how they live. Again, Paul writes to Timothy uh, these following words in uh, 1 Timothy 4 and verse 16. He writes to Timothy as a pastor and he says, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Watch how you live and watch what you teach. Persevere in your life and doctrine because if you do, you will save both yourself and and your hearers. That is a, a glorious promise, but also a frightening one also for any teacher. The promise here is that if you persevere as a teacher in God's church, both in the way you live and in the way you teach, that in no small measure the salvation of the people in the church, the salvation of people hearing you, is dependent on that. So that's how James gets into talking about speech. And now he opens it up and speaks generally, I believe, to the whole community. And he uses here, he uses here um, some examples. And of course, when we're talking here about the tongue, James isn't talking about the, like the, the thing in your mouth per se. But for, for James, the tongue stands for the power of human speech. But listen to these examples that James gives us and they're examples that were so common from the world of the ancient times but I think even though we no longer ride horses or perhaps sail on ships as much as we used to um, we can readily understand the power of these examples so James writes the following from verse 3 when we put bits into the mouth of horses to make them obey us we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example although they're so large and driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. James uses strong words and evocative images, images that call forth in our minds 
clear pictures. As we, I was reading those verses, I hope you thought, that's the power of a good imagination, I hope you thought of a horse and how the, the rider using the bridle can steer the horse. I hope you thought of huge ships with such a small rudder below the waves. You can't even see it if you look at the ship. And I hope you thought, certainly where I come from, we're used to big forest fires being started by small sparks. These are strong words and evocative images here. And I think it's at this point that we see uh, our need, the need that each one of us has for redemption and change. We, we see the pictures James is using, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, if we look at our own history, how we've used words, how others have used words uh, against us, we see we need to be rescued out of this reality. This is how it is with human speech. and We need to be rescued out of this reality. We need to be given strength to change the way we speak. Certainly, my need for redemption becomes clear as I read this text. I hope it does for you too. That's the thing about having children. They, they mirror you in so many ways. And it's kind of, it's kind of scary because oftentimes it's uncon- you're, you do something subconsciously, unconsciously, and then you see that behavior reflected in your child. They've just looked at you and copied you. And that, certainly that comes through in the way they speak as well as in the way they act. It certainly seems to me, my experience as a Christian, that even as we grow in Christ, we walk in the Christian faith over many years, we're, we are disciples, we, we attend church in a good sense, we don't just walk in the door and then leave, but we're, we're part of a church fellowship, part of Christian fellowship, maybe do mission trips. It seems that even as we grow in many ways, we can go backwards in the way that we speak, especially when we're at home, out of the spotlight perhaps, of church, And it's certainly not for nothing that advice is given to would-be fiancés to watch how their prospective husbands speak to their mothers. Have you ever heard that advice? I had that advice. It's interesting. I had to, I had to really think about the way I spoke to my mother when that advice was given to my now wife, but then fiancé. And I think um, for the proverb, as the proverb goes... The way that a man speaks to his mother is one day the way he will speak to you if you marry him and and become his wife. And I think that's painful precisely because it's so often true. And as I said, even this morning, the words I spoke to my family are kind of hanging right now, like playing on replay in my mind. So the point that James is making is this, and we mentioned at the beginning, James is alerting us here. In a prophetic sense, he's warning us here. He's calling out to us here, saying, watch out, be careful. There's a tongue. The tongue has enormous power. Human speech can be very destructive. And he gives us these three examples of horses, ships, and fire in the forest. It's a tiny spark that can start a fire that burns down a whole forest. Basically what he's saying is the tongue, it might only be a very small part of the body, but the control it wields, the effect it has and can have is far out of proportion to its size. And I don't think it's any surprise that James ends on the picture of fire because this is often the effect that our words have, isn't it? We say something perhaps unwisely or unthinkingly and it spreads like wildfire. Certainly that's the way it works in our culture. People accidentally tweet something or accidentally say something in a, in a press conference or in an interview and within a very short period of time it can be spread around the whole world 
on social media. And once that forest is burned, it can't be unburned and it often burns quickly. And I think you get to a certain point in life where this has happened to you, it will have happened to people you know, you've said something unwisely, you've said something unthinkingly and you can't put the genie back in the bottle. It's out there. And James wants us to be very aware of this. He wants us to be very alert about this. He says, in fact, that the tongue is just like that fire that can burn down a forest. He uses very strong words. He says it's a world of evil among the parts of the body. We remember what Jesus himself said. He says it's not what we put into ourselves that makes us unclean. It's what comes out through, often through the mouth, through what we say, the evil thoughts of our hearts that makes us unclean. And we can see that Jesus' teaching is echoed here by James saying, this, what you say, giving expression to the thoughts of your heart, can corrupt your body, can set your whole course of life on fire. If we're not careful, if we're not seeking God's grace and the Spirit's help to change the way we speak, how we speak can destroy lives, can destroy the Christian community, can destroy the lives of others in the community. And that should be very clear to us. This warning should be very clear to us. But I want to give you some concrete examples. Because though these are hard words, we can't underestimate the importance of James' warning here. I mean, I'll give you another example. I think often of our church eldership here, there's five of us, uh, we have three different languages, two different languages, Brandon, two different languages, English and German. Uh, we come, all come from different backgrounds and we, have to, we strive to understand each other. We want to understand where we're coming from. What kind of things have played into our lives to make us think the way we do? And we're just, we're, just giving, we're just spending this effort just to understand each other. When we bring sin into it, as James talks about here with the tongue, then it can be uh, disastrous. It's the same, obviously, I have experience here as well with a, an intercultural marriage. It takes effort to understand. Communication is difficult at the best of times. And when we bring sin into it through misuse of the tongue, it can be disastrous so in the christian community uh, these things these following things have no place this is what james is trying to is trying to get us to think about gossip gossip that is sharing personal details about people's lives in a destructive manner sharing personal details about people's lives in a destructive manner that means you're not trying to protect that person or their reputation. You're not trying to encourage that person who you're speaking about or build that person up. But rather, you're perhaps secretly trying to expose them. Friends, gossip should have no place in our community here at church. And it's funny, often we can do gossip, we can participate in gossip in a faux spiritual sense. I think about the, the, the gossipy prayers. Lord Jesus, I really pray that you would help her overcome that sin. You know? Lord, I really pray that you'd help him, for, that you'd really forgive him for what he did to me. That, that's gossip. And there's something really sick about doing gossip and then covering it in the clothes of piety or prayer. We are not here 
to share personal details about other people's lives in a destructive manner to bring them down. That should have no place here. James wants us to think about talk motivated by envy or jealousy. That is to say, you resent the blessing or the opportunity that some other person has and or you're discontent that they have such a blessing and opportunity and you desire it for yourself. So you resent that they have it or um, going further, you're you're discontent and you want to have it for yourself. And so again, uh, you talk, you talk that person down to other people often behind that person's back. You might say something like, she shouldn't be leading that group. Something like that. Again, this should have no place in our community. This is the kind of thing that James is saying, uh, this is corrupting the body, and we can expand that idea of it's not just corrupting my body when I speak about it, it's corrupting the body of Christ. It's corrupting the community of believers. Or complaining and grumbling. So we've had gossip. We've had talk motivated by envy and jealousy. Envy and jealousy in themselves are sin. But when that leads us to then talk again behind other people's backs, to resent the fact that this person might be leading that or might be ministering there or might be gifted in that way, and we seek to pull that person down to others behind their back or we secretly wish that we had that and therefore we're unhappy that that person has that and we talk against them. That is sin. Complaining and grumbling. This is key, I think. Gossip and envy, jealousy, they often end up in us complaining and grumbling about other people. And God takes this very seriously. In the Old Testament, God threatened to destroy Israel when they were in the desert after leaving Egypt because they kept grumbling and complaining against him and against the leadership that he had installed, namely Moses. God threatened to destroy the people because of complaining and grumbling. God takes this very seriously. Do everything, it says in Philippians, uh, verse 14 of chapter 2, without grumbling or arguing. And even in James, if you flip through to chapter 5 and verse 9, James says, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. Picking up on that Old Testament theme the judge is standing at the door to complain or grumble in the christian community is a serious sin this means what do we mean by complaining or grumbling whinging often again behind other people's backs about others in the community or in the church or about the leaders or about the decisions that have been made or the way things are done and it's so destructive for community life. It undermines the common life and the mission of the community. And that's why God saw it so harshly. It undermined the mission and the common life that he had for his people in the Old Testament and for his people in the New Testament. That's why God saw that so harshly. It must stop. It's a sin. You're not to do it as a Christian and as a follower of Christ. Finally, another example would be backbiting. Backbiting. That's saying mean or spiteful things about a person when they're not there. Mean or spiteful things. Gossip is more sharing details about their lives, maybe pretending to be holy while doing it, but you're kind of like really kind of being in a a salacious manner. 
Backbiting actually means saying mean or spiteful things about a person when they're not there. That's similar to gossip. You know if you're doing it, and brothers and sisters, James says, this has to stop. These things will derail community, they'll derail the church, they'll lead us to failing in our mission, they'll distract us from the goal, they'll disrupt our worship, they'll make us weak, they give a foothold to Satan and to the enemy, they harm the cause of the gospel. Now, of course, we're not talking here about banning uh, legitimate discussion. But we are saying that these kinds of sins of grumbling, complaining, talking behind people's backs, being envious and jealous, gossiping, backbiting, being harsh with each other, these should have no place in the Christian community. And so if we, let's just flip the coin. If we want... We're so excited about the mission that God has for us here at Church at Five, at Calvary Freiburg. For your time in Freiburg, don't we all want to see God work, God make his name great, draw new people to us, to see people come to faith, to see people translated from darkness into light, to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, to see God work amongst us. Certainly that's my vision, and I hope it would be yours too. And if we want to see that, then James is saying, watch out, don't let this derail you don't let this destroy the community of faith and so with these examples let's come to the last part Uh, i want to read you now verses 9 to 12 again of james 3 with the tongue we praise our lord and father and with it we curse human beings who have been made in god's likeness Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. We now come back to where we started, uh, verse 9. And last week, uh, Brandon, when he was talking about faith without deeds... And you can go online and listen to the message if you missed it. Um, he, he wanted us to understand that having faith without deeds, that is, without any evidence of that faith in our, in our lives being real, he wanted us to understand that that is as insane, as ridiculous, as saying to somebody who is naked, cold, without food and without shelter, go in peace, keep warm, and well-fed. That's the very example James uses in chapter 2. To say, imagine somebody up here now who's naked, cold, hungry, looking for shelter, and I say to that person, without doing anything about it, go in peace, be warm, have food. That's insane. And that was Brandon's argument last week. That's just, that's as insane as saying, with my lips, I'm a Christian, and yet look at my life, there's no evidence of that faith. This is the same message that James is communicating here in this text. This same link to living faith. It's the same warning against dead faith. He's saying it is as insane to praise our Lord and Father with our mouths and tongues and then turn around and backbite, gossip, complain, whinge and grumble as it is to expect fig trees to bear olives or grapevines to bear figs. Imagine going out into the fields one day. Do we have any olives around here? Figs? No. Grapevines. We've got grapevines. Good grapevines. 
in the Kaiserstuhl. Imagine you're going out one day to Iringen and you're standing there amongst the grapevines and you see some guy just kind of hanging around. He's got a real big smile on his face. Maybe he's got a big green hat and he's wearing red socks and a blue shirt. He looks a bit strange. And you say, hey, what are you doing out here? And he's like, I'm waiting for these grapevines to bear figs. Your response would be, man, you are insane. That's how insane this is. It's ridiculous. It's completely ridiculous to go out and expect these grapevines to bear figs. Utterly stupid, a complete waste of time. Shows that we, knew, we know nothing about figs or grapevines. As insane as this picture is, James is saying, it is to use the same mouth, the same tongue, to on the one hand praise our Lord and Father in heaven, as it is to then turn around and backbite, gossip, complain, whinge, grumble, sin against our fellow believers in the community, and not only that, but against anyone who's been created in the image of God. Again, James is trying to show us by stark examples what we have come to, in some ways, tolerate. Just as we tolerate, to some degree, dead faith, people who just merely profess but don't act it. He's saying you've come to tolerate this in your community, but it's really insane. It shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be this way. But that is the way it is for each of us in some ways, isn't it? Is it not so that we all of us, that you often say things that are wrong, that you tear down people who have been made in the image of God? Isn't, isn't that true? I know it's true for me. So again, we all see here our need for redemption, to be redeemed. We see our failure. We are like a spring that brings forth both salt and fresh water. As insane as that is, that is how we are. In our fallen condition before we knew Christ, before we knew Jesus at all, in some sense we were only a salt spring because we never worshipped God. Now in our faltering condition between coming to know Christ and being redeemed at the coming of the new heavens and new earth when Jesus returns, we're in a position where we need to experience the ongoing change of God in our lives. And But that's the encouraging thing. James realizes that taming the tongue is ultimately impossible this side of glory. That's what he says in verse 8. In verse 7 and 8, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, sea creatures are being tamed and are being tamed by mankind. I'm not sure what zoo James had been to. I've rarely seen people tame sea creatures and reptiles, but impressive. But, verse 8, no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of of deadly poison. So James realizes that it's impossible, ultimately impossible, this side of glory. But then he knows that it's for this very reason that his brother came. His brother, who never once talked back to their mother. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came and obeyed in our place and has, through his death and resurrection, set us, set you, free from the power of sin and disobedience. And through his Holy Spirit in you, he gives you joy and power by means of his Spirit applying the word to change and to grow. So as you hear these harsh words, these strong words, this strong warning from James, don't harden your heart now, but let the Spirit show you where you need his power to change. So even if perfection, 
being, being, being able ultimately to tame the tongue will only come when this creation is restored at the end of the world. We shouldn't at all give up on striving now with the Spirit's help to glorify God with our speech. So James alerts us here. He warns us here. He calls out to us through the century saying, watch out, be careful, be aware of the destructive power of human speech. He says this because living faith, the kind of faith he's commending to us all through this letter, living faith means taming the tongue. The mark of living faith, as we've seen again and again, is that it is visible in our lives by how we live and when it comes to how we speak, that means living faith is marked by our moving towards taming our tongue, using our speech to glorify God and to encourage each other. And so I want you today to recognize the seriousness of living faith, to see you place your trust in the promises of God through the Holy Spirit, that you might with joy be changed by God. And again, we've seen that we're all prone to these things, to saying the wrong thing, to sinning with our lips, our tongues, our mouths. We're all sinners and we all fall and falter when it comes to speaking. And God's confronting this sin through James. He's showing us that we need redemption and then he's providing us redemption in Jesus Christ. God has planted his word in you, we, we learned in chapter 1, giving you new birth and a new life. Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law. He's obeyed for you. So new life now means that you have God's spirit in you, enabling you to live a life that honors him, that pleases God. And the way that works is through the Holy Spirit working faith in the gospel as the means of transforming you, such that we are responding to what Christ has done for us by radical obedience. So as we hear the word of Christ... And that's what we believe James' letter ultimately is. It's the word of our Savior, Jesus Christ. As we hear this word again and again, the Spirit is working in us and we're encouraging and exhorting each other to live this way. So I ask you, I implore you at the end here, as we, talk, as we come to a conclusion, uh, to hear this word tonight. And, and as we've gone through, I hope that you have let the Spirit, I encourage you now to let the Spirit show you where you need to ask God to change you when it comes to taming the tongue. I'd like to invite the worship team back up right now to sing a final song with us. And I'd also invite you to, if you would like prayer for this, if, you, if you've gone through and you've let James' word speak to you, you're kind of, your heart has been um, you know, alerted to this, I need to change here, God. And I say, I don't want to harden my heart this tonight. I, want, I need redemption. I need your Holy Spirit to change me here. And you'd like prayer for that then you can pray with Brandon or, I think, Elo uh, during this final song. So let me just pray right now to end the sermon, and then we'll sing a final song together. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you have created us with the capacity for language, that we can describe the beautiful world that you've created for us, and that we can descri describe our relationship with you, and we can describe you as Almighty God. We thank you that one day our mouths and tongues will only serve to give you the glory and thereby to lead to our all-fulfilling joy in all of eternity. Lord, we thank you that you came near to us to give us words of life, 
that the reason you gave these words to your minister, James, was not to destroy us. Not to make us resigned and to give up and to be overwhelmed by our failure, but to show us our need for redemption and to encourage us that you've already given us redemption in Jesus Christ, that your spirit is there, actively applying the work in our lives that we might grow and be changed. And so I pray for all of us here tonight. I pray that we would take these words of warning seriously, that we would see the damage like a raging fire that the misuse of our words can do to your mission and your community here in the church. But I pray we'd be encouraged to know that your spirit is here to help us change, that he is working in us daily through the word and through the fellowship to change us to bring us towards that place where one day our tongues really will be tamed, tamed to worship you. And so I pray right now for this last song that you'd help us to worship you again, to be encouraged and to practice again with our mouths, giving you the glory. And I pray for those to whom you've spoken tonight who do need, to pray, who do need prayer, who need the power of fellowship to help them, that they, would be, that they would be strong enough now, bold enough now to come forward and receive prayer. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.